Well, good evening, and we are glad that you are here tonight, and uh, if you have your Bibles, and you would, uh, find with me Jeremiah 52. I had every intent of not going back to the book of Jeremiah. Uh, last week, we jumped into the book of Ezekiel, looking about how it's our job to be the watchman and to warn people of the judgment to come. And I really had thought, well, I'll just skip Jeremiah 52 because literally it's just a repeat of what we've already studied. And uh, we'll move into the book of, of Ezra. You know, we'll look at how they were taken out of the land and how they were brought back into the land. And I had that all prepared and all studied. And as I was praying, the Lord's kind of like, well, if you're going to go verse by verse, you probably shouldn't skip a whole chapter. And uh, so, uh, that is what we're going to do tonight, and uh, I think that there's a reason that God put Jeremiah 52 uh, where he did. Uh, 50 and 51 talks about the destruction of Babylon, and a lot of times people will say, well, where, where was Babylon in um, the Middle East? If you were to go on a map and find Baghdad, a very familiar city that if you've ever watched the news... Uh, Babylon would have been about 50 to 53 miles just south of um, Baghdad. And so you can see there today the ruins of this great city. And it's pretty much just small villages and, and ruins of what once was the greatest city in the world. And you can read Jeremiah 50 and 51 and God talks about this fact that there will be nothing left. The city is going to be total destroyed, totally destroyed. And you can actually today, which um, even though it is a world historical site, there are actually very few visitors outside of the Iraqi people because of the security risk. And so even though it is or could be one of the most visited sites in the world due to its significance, uh, due to security reasons, it's a very... Um, very, uh, not very populated destination of tourists. And so in chapter 52, when God begins to remind the children of Israel why things have happened this way, I want you to remember this tonight with me. And if I was titling this tonight, I would say God's reminder for us. I think all of us are guilty of forgetting God in the good times. And the farther we are from the valleys in our life, the more at risk we are of thinking that we can do it on our own. Now, in the middle of that health scare, in the middle of that financial difficulty, in the middle of that betrayal by someone close to us, it's easy to run to God in those moments. But it seems like as we move out of those valleys, it is so easy to think, um, I'm going to be okay, and I can do things my way, and I'm glad that God was there in the middle of the mess, but now I'm not quite as dependent on Him as I should be. And in Jeremiah 52, we just see a reminder of all that has happened. And there's four things I want to show you tonight. I'm going to try to be brief, because I want to see us pray a little longer tonight is my intent. But in... If you're taking notes tonight, and I hope that you do, the first thing I want to show you from verses 1 through 11 is this. No matter how important that you think you are, 
no matter how important that you think you are, we will all reap what we sow. We will all reap what we sow. And so listen here in verses 1 through 11 as Jeremiah reiterates to them what has happened. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hamatol, the daughter of Jeremiah of Lebanon. He also did evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that Jehoiakim had done. For because of the anger of the Lord, this happened in Jerusalem and Judah. If you underline in your Bible or take notes, I want you to underline that or write that down. Because why? It says, because of the anger of the Lord, this happened in Jerusalem and Judah, till he finally cast them out from his presence. Then Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. Now it came to pass in the ninth year of his reign, in the tenth month, on the tenth day of the month, that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and all his armies came against Jerusalem and camped against it, and they built a siege wall against it all around. So the city was besieged until the eleventh year of King Zedekiah. By the fourth month of the ninth day of the month, the famine had become so severe in the city that there was no food for the people of the land. Then the city wall was broken through, and all the men of war fled, and went out of the city at night by way of the gate between the two walls, which was by the king's garden, even though the Chaldeans were near the city all around, and they went by way of the plain. But the army of the Chaldeans pursued the king, and they overtook Zedekiah in the plains of Jericho. All his army was scattered from him, so they took the king and brought him up to the king of Babylon at Riblah in the land of Hamath, and he pronounced judgment on him. I want to stop right there, because if you think this story sounds familiar, it is. It is just telling what has already happened. And I don't know about you, but I don't mind for people to repeat the stories that I like, right? Those don't bother me at all. But I really don't appreciate it when people repeat the stories that I don't want them to tell, right? I, I know I've told this story, but there's so many new people that come through here. I hadn't been the pastor here very long at 10 Mile. The church was growing, and, and uh, people were being saved, and, and it was right before I actually wore jeans on that Easter service because I thought we were maybe getting a little too big for our britches. And I walked into Huck's one day, and the young lady working behind the register said, Are you Jacob Gray? the pastor at 10 Mile. Well, my first thought was, oh, I bet this person has a terrible story about me. No, I thought, well, I've probably been there for their family or I did a funeral or I helped them out. And I'm like, well, yes, actually I am. And I could tell in that moment that I was getting ready to regret what was coming next. And she said, I was at a party this weekend and they were all sitting around telling stories about how awful you used to be. And in that moment, it was like every bit of the air in a balloon was gone. I'm standing here at Huck's. I think I was getting a big swig. I don't remember. Probably that is a personalized pizza, probably. I can't remember why I was there. People behind me in line, 
And in that moment, I just felt like I could crawl under a rock and die. It was so humiliating. And in that moment, I got to tell her those stories are probably absolutely true, probably not near as bad as they really were, but that is not who I am anymore. And as I walked out of Hux, and I went out of Hux and turned right, as I'm walking to my van, the first thing I thought was, Lord, if you would send me anywhere other than McLeansboro, I would really appreciate this. But then the Lord reminded me that I'm just a sinner saved by grace. And God will use the mistakes of our past and the wonderful gift of salvation that He gives us for His glory. And so while I didn't want those told, and I hope that they're not told anymore, a pastor friend of mine, well, actually, it's, it, he goes to church here um, now, uh, was at Decatur visiting his daughter at church. And a young man from McLeansboro who goes to church there asked him, do you know Jacob Gray from McLeansboro? And at church began to tell him stories of my past. In those moments, I think, shut up, right? But what God does here is He reminds them of their sin. He reminds them of the heartbreak because what He's going to do here in just a moment is say that even though this has happened, even though it has been because of your sinfulness, it does not have to be the end of who you are. But look what it says in verses 10 and 11 though. And we see this specific heartbreaking situation. Then the king of Babylon killed the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes. And he killed all the princes of Judah in Rablah. He also put out the eyes of Zedekiah, and the king of Babylon bound him in bronze fetters, took him to Babylon, and put him in prison till the day of his death. You see, he tried to flee. The important people tried to flee, but when God has pronounced judgment, there is no escaping it. doesn't matter if you're the wealthiest, the most famous, the most talented, the most well-liked. And I also want you to notice this. When God declares judgment, you don't get to pick what judgment that you receive. You say, well, God's judgment's always death. I don't know about you, but if I'm Zedekiah, I would have wished to die. I would have rather died than had my eyes plucked out after I watched my children die and be thrown in prison to think about it for the rest of my life. You say, Jake, what does that mean for me as a Christian? Well, this means first and foremost we know that eternal judgment for those of us that are covered by the blood has been paid for by Jesus. But yet earthly consequences for our sins are still applicable, right? We still will suffer earthly consequences for our sins. And so you say, well, Jake, what does that mean for me? I don't know. I have no idea what your sin and the consequences of that might look like. The Bible talks about generational sin. And so as a Christian, and I really want you to think about this because it doesn't matter how long you've served God or how much money you've given to the things of God or how much of the Bible you know, none of us avoid the consequences of sin. 
The Bible says that God is no respecter of persons. And so I should say, well, well Lord, I'm a pastor. I, I serve you all the time. That's all I do is serve you. I ought to get a free pass when I want to get angry and, and, and hold a grudge in my heart. doesn't work that way. You say, well, Jake, uh, you know, I, uh, I've done a lot of good for the Lord. And so, you know, I think it's just time that I stop serving and, and just uh, get a little bit lazy in serving the Lord. None of those are good excuses. And so tonight I really want you to see this because I think it is important that we see the most important person in the nation of Israel face horrendous consequences because he wouldn't do what God told him. What did God tell him through Jeremiah to do? Do you remember? They were supposed to surrender. This is earlier, right? And um, after they, the city is conquered, uh, God tells them they're supposed to what? Stay. Don't flee. And then what happens? Not only do they flee, they take Jeremiah captive, right? And take him with them. And I think one of my favorite things in the chapters before is Jeremiah tells them, I want you to read this letter, then I want you to tie a rock to it, and I want you to throw it in the river. And I want you to tell them that just like that's going to sink to the bottom, Babylon is never going to rise again. When God pronounces its judgment on Babylon, that is all that there will be. And so when you go, if you were to be able to go to Iraq, which I don't want to go to Iraq, but if you were to Google view Babylon, you could see that exactly what God said has happened. It has never been this thriving, flourishing city that it was. And so thoughts about the judgment of God, the consequences. Uh, have you ever been guilty of thinking that, that God will give you a free pass instead of uh, holding you accountable? I have. I know that you probably have never thought that. But... I think it's something we all struggle with. Well, God will overlook my sin. He does overlook our sin when He covers us in the blood of Jesus. But the consequences on this earth are still something that we all struggle with. Churches, if you weren't here Sunday night, missed a wonderful sermon. I can't help it that you weren't here. But, uh, no, I'm just kidding. But we talked about Sunday night about how some people will accept the work of God some people will hinder the work of God, and some people will hate the work of God. And I want you to know that many churches today that are struggling, that are dying, that are closing, it has nothing to do with what they've done today. It is the consequences from in 1972 when God was saving and working and moving and the church was growing and God was blessing and uh, a group of three old grouchy deacons' wives got mad at the preacher and ran him off. And then God blessed him again and sent another good pastor and the same thing happened they ran him off. And that happened like seven times and eventually God says what? I'll work somewhere else. Now I, I know that you've never been a part of that or been in a church like that, but that's the truth. And so I really want you to see that tonight, that none of us are exempt from the earthly consequences of sin. Thoughts? All right. And not always do we reap the same consequences as someone else does. 
for the sins that they commit. You say, well, Jake, you, you do the same things I do and, and, uh, and you've never been ratted out. Or you say, uh, well, Jake, I work with a person and they're lazier than I am and they've never been fired. Why aren't the consequences of their sin the same as mine? Or why is it different? Well, one, that's for God to deal with. And we don't know what God is doing behind the scenes or how God is working or how God is moving. All I can control is God, search me convict me, and Lord, help me to ask forgiveness in every situation of my life. Because the second thing I want to show you tonight is that God will tear down the things that we make into idols. God will tear down the things that we make into idols. Look what it says in verse 12. Now in the fifth month of the tenth day of the month, which was the nineteenth year of the king Nebuchadnezzar's king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, the captain of the guard, who served the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. <clears throat> he burned the house of the Lord and the king's house and all the houses of Jerusalem, that is, all the houses of the great, he burned with fire. And all the army of the Chaldeans who were with the captain of the guard broke down all the walls of Jerusalem all around. Then Nebuchadnezzar, the captain of the guard, carried away some of the poor people, the rest of the people who remained in the city, the defectors who had deserted to the king of Babylon, and the rest of the craftsmen. Now Nebuchadnezzar, the captain of the guard, left some of the poor of the land as vine dressers and farmers. The bronze pillars that were in the house of the Lord and the carts and the bronze sea that were in the house of the Lord, the Chaldeans broke in pieces and carried all their bronze to Babylon. They also took away the pots, the shovels, the trimmers, the bowls, the spoons, and all the bronze utensils with which the priest ministered. The basins, the fire pans, the bowls, the pots, the lampstands, the spoons, and the cups, whatever was solid gold and whatever was solid silver, the captain of the guard took away. The two pillars, one sea, <clears throat> the, the twelve bronze bulls which were under it, and the carts, <coughs> excuse me, which Solomon had made for the house of the Lord, the bronze of all these articles was beyond measure. Now concerning the pillars, the height of one pillar was 18 cubits. A measuring line of 12 cubits could measure its circumference, and its thick thickness was four fingers. It was hollow. A capital of bronze was on it, and the height of one capital was five cubits. And the network and pomegranates all around the capital, all of brown, the second pillar... With pomegranates, with the same, there were 96 pomegranates on the sides. All, all around the network were 100. I want you to stop. You say, Jake, why did you read all that? I really don't care about the cubits and the, and the bronze. I want you to see that everything he names here is what the Jewish people used to worship God. And what God is showing them is this. That building that you worship in, those things and rituals that you go through, 
all of that money that Solomon had spent and all of the things that were the height of the nation of Israel when Solomon built the temple, all that stuff that they had made the idol of their life, God says, I will take every single bit of it from you. And friends, tonight I want you to hear this because all of us are guilty of setting up idols in our life. Sometimes the church becomes our idol. Sometimes our relationships with other people become our idols. Sometimes our hobbies become our idols. But I want you to hear this today. God will be long-suffering, but at some point... Whatever you love more than Jesus, if you are truly saved, God is going to remove. You say, Jake, what does that mean? That means exactly what I said. I don't know else how to explain it. You say, Jake, God will remove the people from my life if they become my idol? Absolutely. Now, that doesn't mean that God is going to smite them or strike them dead, but He might cause a wedge of separation. You say, but Jake, the church that I love, God might move you to a place where you can no longer go to the church that has become your idol. You say, well, Jake, what about my hobbies? I, I, it's my, my life to live as I want. God might just take your ability to financially do those hobbies or your abilities to perform those hobbies from you. You say, well, Jake, that's just not very fair. God requires for us to love Him with everything that we have. You see, we have tried to convince the world that you can love Jesus with whatever is left over from what you love, everything else. And that's not how it goes. Jesus made it very clear that we had to love Him with what? Will you care to repeat that? Heart, soul, mind, and strength. Everything we are. That doesn't mean you can't love other things. That doesn't mean I only love Jesus and I hate my wife. It doesn't mean that I only love Jesus and hate my own mother. It doesn't mean that. It just means, though, that I have to love Jesus more than anyone or anything. And you say, Jake, that is a really good church answer. But that's a whole lot harder to do in real life. Right? I've never seen God. I see my loved ones. I've never seen God, but I've seen the things on this earth that I love. I really do believe that when someone is truly saved and the Spirit of God lives within you, that relationship with Jesus is as real and more real than any relationship you will ever have. I just believe that. I believe that because I feel like that is the relationship that I have with the Lord. There's a whole lot of things I'll tell the Lord that I won't tell my wife because the Lord never argues back with me. No, I'm just, I'm just being serious. No, um, no I'm, just, I'm just teasing. But there's a whole lot of things I'll tell Jesus in my time of prayer and fasting that I wouldn't tell you. I believe that because I believe that when the Bible tells you that the Spirit of God indwells you, that's exactly what happens. You say, Jake, so you're telling me I should feel saved? Well, I think you can feel heartburn, okay? But I'm telling you, when you know that you are saved, and the Bible tells you that you are saved, you will know that you are saved. You will know that you know that you know. You say, Jake, I've made a profession of faith, but I don't know that I know. 
Well, one, a lot of times that's Satan putting doubt into your mind. How could God love someone like you? How could God love someone that made so many mistakes like you? Satan will do that to you. Satan will constantly remind you of your faults and your failures. But that's why it is so important to be doing what? Studying and praying. The only time my relationship with God has suffered is when I don't have one with Him. If I will spend time with Him, and I believe this, if you will spend time with Him in prayer and in Bible study, if you will seriously get along with Him and ask Him to search you and to, to deal with you, He will. And you say, Jake, that's a relationship that I want with Jesus. Well, I am thankful for that, but it is only Him that can give it to you. You can't get it through me. You can't get it through a priest. You can't get it through a confessional. You can't get it through a baptismal. You must be born again. And so tonight, I really want you to think about that. There's nothing wrong with loving church and loving your family and, and loving all these things that God had gave them. But as long as they had the temple, they thought nothing bad can happen to us. They thought as long as we have our homes and we live inside of Jerusalem, the city of God, nothing can happen to us. They thought as long as we live in the promised land, the nation of Israel, nothing bad can happen to us. And God just shows them that the land, the buildings, and the temple are not enough to save you. And friends, the same is true today. All the extra stuff that we have at church and our religious beliefs, none of it is enough to save you other than Jesus. Thoughts, disagreements, questions. I've lost my notes. They were just here. Oh. All right, third thing. Man, you really want me to get done quick tonight, except for this person that keeps texting me. I don't know who that is. <clears throat> Verses 24 through 29. Judgment affects every family and every kind of faith. Judgment affects every family and every kind of faith. And I write this title tonight, not in the sense of every kind of faith, like you're a Jewish faith, a Muslim faith, a Mennonite faith. That's not what I'm talking about. When I say every kind of faith is, that is whether or not your faith is real, your faith is fake, there is no faith at all. When God's judgment falls on a nation, and I, I hope that you'll hear this tonight, as we're, I believe, on the very edge of God pouring out His judgment on our country. There is no other way. God is going to open up the windows of heaven and bring us to our knees or God is going to send a revival that will change lives. One of two things, okay? Listen to what it says in verse 24. The captain of the guard took Sariah, the chief priest, the supposed to be most religious person in all of Israel. Zephaniah, the second priest, should be the second most religious person in the nation and the three doorkeepers. He also took out of the city an officer who had charge of the men of war. So he took the religious leader, 
He took the military leader. He went on and put says here, seven men of the king's close associates who were found in the city. That's the politicians or um, legalistic leaders of the nation. The principal scribe of the army who mustered the people of the land. And 60 men of the people of the land who were found in the midst of the city. So he took the religious, he took the military, he took the politicians, he took the scribe, which is just an everyday soldier or officer in the army, and he took regular people. Alright? No one is exempt from this. And I want you to read verse 26. And Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, took these and brought them to the king of Babylon at Rablah. Then the king of Babylon struck them and put them to death at Rablah in the land of Hamath. Thus Judah was carried away captive from its own land. These are the people whom Nebuchadnezzar carried away captive in the seventh year. 3,023 Jews. In the 18th year of Nebuchadnezzar, he carried away captive from Jerusalem 832 persons. In the 23rd year of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, carried away captive of the Jews 745 persons. All the persons were 4,600. And so I think it's significant here that he begins to describe each class of people and each background of people because sometimes we think, well, if God pours out His judgment on America, that Christians will be spared. That's not how it works. If God decides to tank the economy to humble us for our pride and lust of things, are there some ways that you can protect yourself a little bit? Absolutely. But most likely it will affect who? Everybody. In 2008, if you had your money in the stock market, most likely, it don't matter if you were an atheist, a Jew, a Muslim, or a Christian, your account did what? Now, some of us aren't old enough to remember what it was like investing in 2008, but for you all that are older, uh, it probably almost all went... you got to speak up, I'm deaf. It went down, right? It went down. Now, some of you can say, well, I got out before that because I knew, but okay, that's great. But if you left it in, it probably went down just like everyone else's. Because why? When God pours out His judgment on a nation, can He spare His people? Absolutely. Can God provide for His people in a way that lost people don't? Absolutely. But God will also judge no matter the faith, the family, or the stature of who you are. I really believe that when persecution comes, whether it is the persecution of losing your job because you won't bow to a government mandate, I believe it is when the government will no longer let you go into a shopping center because you won't bow to a government mandate. I believe when the government decides to shut down churches because they no longer want us to preach on homosexuality or transgender beliefs. I believe that the church will suffer persecution not last, but first. You say, well, Jake, that's just not very fair. We've done what God is trying to do. The Bible says that we're like salt and light, and the reason America has been blessed as long as it has is because of the influence of the righteous. 
But when God chooses to judge, that's why it's so serious for you and I as Christians to be on our knees praying. You say, Jake, I don't pray for America. The Bible says that you are to pray for all men. 1 Timothy chapter 2. And then he lists a bunch of people in there that the people he's writing that letter to would have not wanted to pray to. He says, I want you to pray to the kings and the rulers. You know, those kings and rulers probably would have thrown their loved ones in prison. Probably even might have had some of them killed for their faith. And Paul has the audacity to write, you pray for them? That's what it says. That we might live what? Quiet and peaceful lives. You see, God tells us to pray to avoid persecution. But He also wants us to pray to be faithful in the persecution. You say, well, Jake, I just don't believe America is as spiritual as other nations because we're not dying for our faith. That's not a biblical account. That's not a biblical truth. If God sends persecution, you are called to be faithful. If God sends you in a time of peace, you should be faithful. Faithfulness does not depend on the circumstances. Just like my relationship with God does not reflect whether or not I'm wealthy or I'm poor. I could love God as much or more than you and have nothing earthly. And you could have everything earthly. And so tonight I really want you to see this here, that when judgment falls, it will fall and spare no one. My prayer though is that God would spare us. That God would be merciful. That God would work in the blessings, not in the correction. But if He chooses not to... My prayer is that I would be faithful. I don't want to die for my faith. I want to go in the rapture, all right? If you don't believe in the rapture, it's okay. I don't know why you'd want to believe that, but hold to it, whatever. I want to go in the rapture. But my real prayer is, Lord, I want to be found faithful to the end. You see, the early church had a great struggle. As persecution was coming, and if you read anything about church history, you will know that many people did die for their faith. But many people would recant. In the moment of persecution, they would say, I'm not a Christian. And they would spare them. But something would happen. There were true Christians that denied their faith and then would come back to the church and say, I was wrong. And the church struggled with what do you do with those people? And many of those people actually ended up, ended up dying for their faith when persecution happened again. But yet that happened because truly all of us don't know exactly how we are going to respond in a situation until the situation happens. You say, not me, Jake. I'd never recount my faith. I'm difficult. I'm stubborn. I'm, I'm, a, I'm, I'm ready to go. Be very careful until they put a gun to your child. Be careful until they tell you, well, you're not going to be able to feed your family. Think about the Christians in Germany during the Second World War. I would do anything for my faith, but I'm not hiding a Jew from the Nazis. You see, I think all of us should stay humble and we should pray and we should ask God that in those moments of difficulty that we will endure. But remember that even if you fall in the moments of difficulty, God can forgive you. You say, well, the Bible says, if you deny me in front of men, I will deny you. It's very true. 
But you also have to remember this. Being born again is an act of God's grace. And there are times that Christians wilt in their faith. There are times that Christians stand in their faith. The Apostle Paul, Apostle Peter did what three times? Denied him, but yet he did not die and go to hell from all the accounts that the Bible teaches us. Right? And so I really want you to know tonight that before any of us think that we are the spiritual superman that can handle anything, we probably need to step back and say, God, be with me in whatever comes my way. That's what I tell kids in high school and junior high because they'll come up to me and they'll say something like, Pastor, I'm just a brother Jake or Jake or whatever. Probably a lot of things I don't want to know they call me. But uh, uh, you know, I'm really struggling and being a Christian at, at school and it's hard and it's all those things. I'm like, hey, I got it. I deal with supposedly Christian people every day and it's hard for me to keep the faith some days. I just tell them you just have to ask forgiveness and just continue to serve God and love God. And, and if you failed somebody, you apologize and try to do what God's asked you to do. And so I really want you to think about that tonight as you pray for your country, you pray for yourself. Thoughts. Disagreements. All right. Last one, and then you can argue amongst yourself. God can show mercy even in judgment. You see, Jeremiah is a pretty discouraging book. But at the very end of it, God puts this little picture of hope. In verse 31 it says, Now it came to pass in the 37th year of the captivity of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, in the twelfth month, on the twenty-fifth day of the month, that evil Merodach, king of Babylon, in the first year of his reign, lifted up the head of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and brought him out of prison. And he spoke kindly to him, and gave him a more prominent seat than those of the kings who were with him in Babylon." So Jehoiakim changed from his prison garments and he ate bread regularly before the king all the days of his life. And as for his provisions, there was a regular ration given to him by the king of Babylon, a portion for each day until the day of his death, all the days of his life. You see, in the midst of all this death and destruction and judgment, God gives hope. This king who is in prison, who is still a captive, was given some freedom, was given some hope. And many scholars believe this is put at the end of this book because the children of Israel needed hope. Listen, I know the Bible says it's a, job, a pastor's job to, to rebuke and correct and, and to preach the world in season and out of season, but I think most pastors and most church members forget we have hope. We have hope that the gospel is the power to change lives. That Jesus is coming back again. That he who is in me is greater than he that is in the world. <laughs> oh, I'm going to say this and it's going to get me in trouble, but I don't care. I always love 
don't love because it makes me sin. People say, Lord, I'm just thankful for the joy of your salvation. And what I want to say is, I've known you a long time and I ain't ever seen any joy at all. I don't. I just told you that tonight. Ever met people like that? There's no joy ever. Boy, seven people were saved. Yeah, but boy, they families came to the baptism and I had to move out of my seat. I can't believe we had the biggest crowd we had Sunday as we've had since COVID. Yeah, but I had to park all the way out there by the gym. Well, I tell you, God sure has blessed in your family and, and you've got healthy kids and you got this. Yeah, but I tell you what, it sure would be easier if my wife would listen more. But we all got that prayer. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just, I'm just teasing. Just teasing. My mom and my wife's in here tonight. I wouldn't say it if she wasn't. Because I'd be afraid you'd all rat me out. But no. But you've got to have joy. There is joy unspeakable, as the old song says, and full of glory. But I tell you what, I don't know if you've ever sit through a church service sometimes. I look around some Sundays up there from the pulpit and think, boy, I don't know if the sermon is just that bad or they just have got no joy. And it's usually when I'm reading the, reading the card so it can't be the sermon. Watch people walk into church. And I understand. Please don't think that I'm being critical. I understand coming to church broken. And I understand coming to church hurting. And I understand looking out over the crowd as a pastor and if you watched my nightly devotion last night, I, I was talking about that helpless feeling of praying for people, but yet watching things still go bad and, and sick people just continue to get sicker. And it's one of the hardest things as a pastor is preaching so many funerals and going to so many nursing homes and so many hospitals and so many end-of-life calls because in my mind, every time, I just want God to do a miracle. It doesn't matter that they're 99 years old. I just want them to jump up out of that bed and, and be like Abraham, right? Not have a kid at 100 or nothing like that. But, but you know what I mean? That's, that's what I want. I've never went into a situation and say, Lord, I, I'm, I just wish they would go on. I know that that's a win for them. But when you read the book of Acts, the miraculous works of God are always that, right? They're miraculous. And yes, the Bible talks about the Apostle Paul ready to go to heaven, that he wants to go to heaven, that he's, that, uh, you know, he's torn whether to stay or go. But when I pray for the sick to be healed, I would love to see the sick healed. You say God knows better than you. Absolutely right. But it still doesn't change the fact that I think there's something about in us that wants to see what? Life. We want to see that family get more years in their marriage. We want to see that grandparent watch their grandchild get married. I think it's one of the most special things. Uh, uh, before my wife and I got married, we, we hung out at my grandma and grandpa's a lot. That's just what we did uh, on our, I mean, it's true, isn't it, Tony? We would go on dates to my grandma and grandpa's. It's just the way it was. They were cool people. And uh, he would tell her how great I was, so he was trying to convince her not to leave. And uh, cream of the crop, right, dear? That's what he said. <laughs> She's thinking it was more like rotten crop. But anyway, <laughs> uh, but I just, I really did love my grand, grandma and grandpa great. Love my other grandparents too. But, uh, but I'll never forget when he had his stroke and uh, took him to Evansville. And they told him that here they weren't, he wasn't going to make it. We took him to Evansville and he got better. And, and uh, I remember going to see him at the nursing home one day. And he says, one of the things that I want is I want to last just long enough 
to go to your wedding. And, uh, and he was there. He was in a wheelchair and, and uh, looking as spiffy as always with his full head of hair at 80-some years old. And here I am with a five head and, and a landing strip up here. But, uh, uh, but that was something, right? And I think how special that is. And I've looked at our wedding pictures and how young and good-looking we were. But, uh, but one of the things that's most special about those wedding pictures is the fact that he is in them. And so I pray that for families, right? We, we pray that way. And, and so I think it's a, a very uh, overwhelming thing for me to watch, you know, and as Keith can tell you, working in a nursing home and, and in health care, it's, it's just an overwhelming thing when you watch people uh, die and, and suffer and struggle. And so I really think that this is very special here at the end of this because God shows them that there's hope that God has not forgotten them, that God has not left them, that God has not just abandoned them, and that there's hope. And that's how I want to start next week, is when we start the book of Ezra, that the children of Israel are beginning this trip. And we're going to look at Nehemiah and Ezra about how God brings them back to the land. And we see that even though we've suffered through Jeremiah, that God was not done with them. And my message to you tonight is as we finish Jeremiah is this one simple thing. No matter where you've been or what you've been through, no matter how hard it's been, no matter how broken it seems, that if God still has you here, He has something in store for you. That hope is not lost. That Jesus is still on the throne. That God can restore broken things, that God can give life to dry bones. And so I just really want to leave you with that word of encouragement after spending like, I don't know how many weeks we were in it before. It's been years now, since we've, Dave, since we've been in Jeremiah, but that it does end with this message of hope. Hope for those who love and trust God. Thoughts?